0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery. I'm happy to welcome Lee Durkee to the program today. Lee's work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, Best of the Oxford American, and New England Review, among others. His first novel was Rides of the Midway, and today we'll be talking about his latest, The Last Taxi Driver, which is published by Ten House Books. Lee, The Last Taxi Driver takes place all over the course of one day in northern Mississippi. Now, is this an especially remarkable day for Lou the driver, or is it just Same stuff, different day.
1: I would say it's a very remarkable day for Lou in that it's sort of a trapdoor and laundry shoot day where everything that goes wrong will kind of go wrong and will test him in all different directions. And ultimately, it'll become a question of life and death. And so everything's on the line for Lou. He has sort of a bleak future, but he also, you know, has the capacity to rally. I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's not a typical day and it's not boring.
0: His last name is Bischoff, but it could have been Murphy just as easily. (laughs) One of the reasons he could be the last taxi driver, Uber has been threatening to come to his college town of Gentry.
1: Yes. Uber is an entity he doesn't quite understand. It's more like a blob on the horizon. He knows it's not good. The tidings are not good. They've tried to come to the town once before and got rejected by the town, and now they're coming back full force. And he and all the other cab drivers are worried without even being able to quite understand how Uber works. So that's kind of a horror movie in that sense, the Uber coming to town is in the backdrop of everything and, you know, obviously influences the title.
0: Now, what is driving a cab like in northern Mississippi different from, like, a more concentrated city like New York or Boston?
1: Well, you would have the badge system in the big cities and I know very little about that world. If you have smaller town, college towns, odds are your cab system works with independent contractors, which is the same way Uber and Lyft works. And it's not a good system for anybody, and nobody seems to get rich on it, but everybody gets fills ripped off. You have to drive 60, 70-hour weeks if you want to survive You know, and actually put some money away. Driving that much, you at least don't have the opportunity to spend money, so that works out better. I was a day shift driver in that opposite world from night shift. And I think people have a good conception of what happens on night shift, at least via movies where you see, you know, the steam coming out of the gutter and the rain splashing over the windshield wipers. And there's always a line of prostitutes. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's the cinematic portrayal of night driving. But day driving, you take people to work and you tend to pick them up in places where customers don't have credit cards. They don't have bank accounts. So you go down dirt roads, you go to projects, you go to trailer parks, and if you're late, those people are late for work and they can get fired. So there's stress to the whole thing. And you have regulars, so you're dealing with the same people every day and they become your friends. So it's a very different world than the night shift.
0: What path led Lou to driving a taxi in Gentry, Mississippi?
1: Um, Lou was a bartender who uh, gave in to back spasms. Experimented a little bit with teaching, and that was a bit of catastrophe. He was fired uh, for getting in a bar altercation. After that, he kind of resorted to taxi driving as a, the final net between him and the ground. I think, and he enjoys it. and And I think Lou really likes the feeling of community he gets being a day shift driver because you are contributing. You know, you're helping old people do everything. You know, you're helping them shop. You're helping them put away their groceries. I've helped them pee. I've helped them take out their garbage. I've, you know, I've chased after their pets. There's nothing I haven't done to help old people, and they were a big part of my clientele. So that permeates the novel as well. Lou's experience and mine sometime overlap.
0: But he's had to start dabbling in Buddhism to help with yeah. his reaction to at least other drivers and some of the, his clients.
1: Yeah, that also probably comes from my direct experience cab driving, in which. I had a um, certain worldview of myself. It was very inaccurate. I thought I was a maybe a halfway decent Buddhist. When I started driving a cab, I gave into road rage almost every day at, after a certain point. You know, and, and this is with driving 70 hour weeks. So partially it's forgivable. And I think that's the one thing a lot of people can relate to in America is road rage. So the book encompasses Lou's battles. He's reading Buddhist book, trying to improve himself, but to little avail, I guess.
0: Which roads in Lafayette County were the worst to drive on that incited the most rage?
1: You might have me stumped a little bit there. It's just a matter of, you know, when the traffic is bad. Jackson Avenue was always a nightmare. You would always try to do everything you could to avoid that. Because anywhere you have a long line of, of traffic lights. I was screaming on my way here on Poplar. I still have not conquered that problem because it's just that long string of red lights so it's just a matter of the mood and the illusion of bad luck, as if the world's contriving, you know, against you when you keep getting one red light after another.
0: Hard not to take it personal.
1: For Lou, yes. For me, occasionally, yes.
0: He has quite a collection of air fresheners in the car. Can you give us a tour of the air fresheners?
1: He's got three of them, and they're kind of conversation starters. One of them is a, a Shakespeare, mint air freshener, there's a Bigfoot one, which I believe is pine-scented, and then there's the UFO one, which is a flying saucer, but it was kind of a rip-off, and it was supposed to be Spearman, I think, but it didn't have any smell to it. It kind of encapsulates Lou's character to some degree, too, I think. You see a reflection of him, and people tend to pick out one air freshener over the others to ask them of, and... It's a little bit telling of character, but it's just a conversation starter for him too, I think, more than, uh, although the, the odors are a problem and, you know, but you have the Febreze for that and the osium, thank
0: God. You, of course, are currently wrapping up a book on your relationship with Shakespeare as yeah. well.
1: I don't know if I'm at the wrapping up stage. oh uh, Yeah, it's, uh, it's still got some work to be done on it. I just had to put it aside for a while, but yes. For decades, I was obsessed with finding a, uh, be the only person ever to find a a portrait of Shakespeare painted from life. There have been many portraits that have been championed as painted from life over the year, but they've all been debunked eventually.
0: How did you get involved in that game?
1: It was a long trek. I had a very good Shakespeare teacher, Dr. Leo Van Syck, in the University of Arkansas. So... Even as an undergraduate, I was hooked into the world of the Elizabethans. And eventually, after reading their histories, I became, you know, interested in what they would look like. And I became interested in the portraiture. And eventually that led to the whole scandals behind all these Shakespeare portraits. It's quite a whodunit at times. But the book is about obsession. And it's about, I mean, it's a funny book. It's not an academic book. It's a memoir. Hopefully it'll appeal to readers on both sides of the Shakespeare authorship debate. That's a tightrope to walk because there's a lot of anger on both sides, but the whole phenomenon of Shakespeare is considered, but it is a personal narrative as well.
0: i have to say I read uh, Troilus and Cressida when I was at the University of Arkansas, and that one didn't really grab me too much.
1: Yeah, i drawing a blank on that one myself. I think I've read all the plays, but I'm not really remembering anything about that, yeah.
0: Now, his cab company is owned by a woman named Stella, and she is not on the up-and-up.
1: Stella has her business side and her phone side in which, yeah, she'll manipulate you. She In the book, she, you know, she has a pill problem, too, maybe mixing it with booze problem. She's dispatching. Her leg's injured, so she's stuck at home. So I think she's a sympathetic character, and I hope I got of the way to show that, you know, in spite of her shortcomings, she's also a local hero. She's saved countless lives. She's been doing this 15 years And yeah, she's a little bit crazed at this point of the book. But anybody who had been in the taxi business for a decade would be crazy. It's just too crazy of business to survive sane. So when Lou sees her in person, he's always surprised how much he likes her. But it's the phone her he has to deal with and a dispatch version of her that he has to deal with. And yeah, she does screw him over occasionally.
0: Yeah, because I mean, if she were a Monopoly card, his bank era always goes in Stella's favor.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You know, but she's also by turns paranoid because the taxi business essentially when it's cash works on the honor system. So how do you deal with that? You have this group of cabbies and you're trusting them to be honest with you as the owner. So it works both ways because most cabbies were not honest with her, I'm sure. So I think that, you know, lends itself to paranoia. But I think of Stella as a hero,
0: local hero. Early on in the book, Lou's driving and he sees a specter he sees the shadow of a man that he doesn't want to see, and it's Stella's son.
1: Right, right. His nemesis comes back to town and gets the plot rolling. I think that's at the end of maybe chapter two. Uh, Tony comes back, and all the complications that come with him and their history and all their their new unfolding history together As Tony's on the lam, and Lou is forced to drive him around a little bit more and do some favors for him, and uh, is even eventually given a gun by Tony, which in Lou's deteriorating condition, uh, presents itself as a talking gun, which is, a, I think rather new in the history of literature, I thought, has there ever been a talking gun? And there must be hundreds of them, but they don't come to mind for me. I can't think of talking, you know, Surely there psychically telepathic yeah. guns. So now there's at least one.
0: I thought it was just great that they never exactly knew what Tony was on charges for being under house arrest for up in Kansas City.
1: Yeah, there was a drug deal gone wrong. Lou always feels like he's not in the loop. He's not necessarily one of the guys with the other cabbies. So uh, he doesn't know the details and he's left to imagine the worst. But we know there's a stab wound (laughs) on Tony. Uh, And so, you know, you can assume that he might have fought back. Hopefully nobody was murdered.
0: Another nice touch I liked, that the uh, local motel... The pretty much the Motel Motel of the area is uh, spelled R E B E L, but it's pronounced Rebel. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you picked up
1: on that. Yes, yeah, because you get the rhyme. The Rebel Motel, yeah, it's kind of one of the uh, centers of the book that Lou is sent there repeatedly, and he knows the people who are staying there. Tony being one of them. Uh, another center would be the hospital, as the hospital comes up again and again, because Lou's job is to. Uh, pick up people who have been released from the hospital for, because they can't pay and take them back to wherever it is they abide so he's constantly going to the hospital and the rebel motel and they form like a, the nexus of the plot of the novel
0: and there's also the good rehab and the bad rehab
1: Oh you're right the good rehab and the bad rehab a good rehab is a wonderful thing and a and a bad rehab is a scam but almost all rehabs now when you check in they will take all your stuff and they'll make you sign an agreement that if you decide to leave early, you don't get your stuff back. They'll mail it to you, et cetera, et cetera. You won't even get your phone back in some instances. And so if you have a bad rehab place, people are actually having to escape from it, throwing their stuff out the windows and trying to get a cab and waiting, waiting for hours to get one in the book. So there are these bad rehabs all over America that are making a lot of money. So I wanted to get that in the book.
0: Having these hellaciously long days, fifteen, twenty hour days driving, even going home is no comfort because his girlfriend Miko's back at home and they're kind of on the outs.
1: Yeah. I wanted to write about our end of a relationship. I always loved that scene at the beginning of Down by Law, Jarmouche movie with Tom Waits and Ellen Barkin playing Tom Waits is the DJ's girlfriend, and they just have it out and they're throwing records at each other and throwing clothes out windows. And it's just that kind of an explosive relationship. That's what Lou goes home to. But Miko is also very apathetic and, you know, she doesn't move much. She's lethargic. She's suffering from depression. She's a poet. So mostly he's going home to a couch and to. Fall asleep and dream about driving because if you're driving seventy hour weeks, then you're dreaming about it the moment you fall asleep. You know, that motion comes in and takes you over and you wake up to go to work from a dream about work, which translates into a nightmare.
0: I uh used to work at a chain of liquor stores and we had a, a warehouse and I was the warehouse manager and that would be my dreams every night was unpacking bottles and running orders and stuff. That's just not even anything anything remarkable. Yeah. It was just working 16, get paid for eight, essentially.
1: Uh, yeah, that's just horrible. Yeah, I think that's your body's, your soul's way of trying to tell you to get a different job. <laughs>
0: we touched on it briefly before, but why did you decide to rename Oxford, Mississippi, which this resembles more than a bit, and why did you decide to call it Gentry?
1: Well, it's clearly not Oxford. <laughs> no, it's obviously Batesville. <laughs> Gentry, because I wanted to emphasize the problem of gentrification in college towns, which is a huge problem. There is a um, woman who, I think she's still out there occasionally, in front of the um, Civil Rights Museum, and she's always got a sign that says, gentrification is racism. And that's set me to thinking. And when you see it happening in front of you in Oxford, you recognize it is a problem, and it is a type of racism which isn't necessarily as malicious as other forms but it has the same effect of segregation and segregation is the great enemy um
0: people have to move out of town they got farther to drive and when their cars break down they call the taxi driver exactly
1: and you know Oxford has undergone this metamorphosis where all you know, the one thing that made it unique was that it had a bohemian element. It was always terribly segregated, but there was a bohemian element in Mississippi which is pretty rare and there were a lot of artists. They've all been priced out now. You know, they've had them they've either died or scattered, you know, ten miles away or moved entirely. So you don't just wander downtown and, you know, run into musicians and poets and stuff anymore. It's it's a different atmosphere lots of foodies, and a lot has been lost in that. That's successful America. This is what a town wants to do, but soullessness is a problem, and if that's what you achieve, then maybe it should be fought. Maybe gentrification is something that should be discussed at town meetings that should have a presence in the city, but there's no discussion about how to curb it in Oxford or in gentry.
0: You um, dedicated the book to Ron Shapiro. Do you have a, a favorite Ronzo story you could share with us?
1: favorite Ron story. Ron and I, we were both drivers, and Ron would give me all his extra passengers because, you know, Ron had a pretty good business over the decades. And so we, we worked together forever. So he was a fellow driver. So that's part of the reason I dedicated the book to him. He was a close friend, and he was so important to Oxford. He seemed to represent something fundamental to Oxford that was different than anywhere else. I think his influence with the movie theater is underrated, if anything. The Hoka really nurtured that bohemian element I was talking about. But, you know, Ron was not—when I, mean, I knew him, Ron was the most laid-back. He was a fellow Buddhist. That was nice. And but he wasn't a wild man or anything like that, you know? Just telling stories about Ron is like telling stories about somebody just being— laid back, nice and cool. The whole town misses him more than I've ever seen a town miss anybody. And it really hasn't set in, but his memory is going to be with us always. And hopefully we're going to rally and have some sort of music fest named after him sometime soon. I think that's inevitable and the right thing to do. So I hope we go in that direction.
0: And Book Talk listeners may not know it, but Ron ferried many authors around and there are dozens of book talk episodes where ron is sitting in the background just listening as i'm talking to somebody else he was he was a wonderful guy
1: yeah even to this day when i find myself giving into anger while driving or elsewhere i kind of just ask myself what would ronzo do and try to just imagine him for a moment and mimic his reaction there's a buddhist belief that's discussed in the book that holds that one of the best ways to become the buddha is to pretend you're the buddha If you pretend it enough, then that's going to have a huge influence on you. So it's actually a method of aspiring to be better that's said to be effective. I'm sure it is for other people. (laughs) Fake it until Uh, you make it. So it just says Ron is my car Buddha now. I Just imagine what Ron would do. What would Ron Shapiro do?
0: Lou in the book seems so cynical. If he were on the West Coast, he would see all the, the fake Buddhists and be driven away from it, but in North Mississippi, where he's seen a bunch of rich college kids.
1: Yeah, there are no Buddhists. I mean, there was me, Ron, in Oxford. But, you know, Batesville, which were obviously the book is set, <laughs> uh, has a Buddhist uh, monastery run oh, by really? Han, who's very well respected in the Buddhist world, in the, uh, what they used to call small-wheel Buddhism, which adheres more to the Buddha's original teachings. And so I like the fact that there's a monastery in Batesville. That seems strange to me.
0: Hospital runs are another big bit of income, so it's a lot cheaper to employ Lou than it is to go buy ambulance.
1: Yeah. I mean, are just a group of people who will not call ambulances. They, yeah, it would ruin them. So many people without insurance or even people with insurance won't call ambulances. So taxis pick up people and take them to the hospital all the time in various stages of disrepair. You know, they're bleeding, they're you know, whatever. Sometimes you don't know what's wrong with them. Sometimes you absolutely know what's wrong with them. They just got in a fight. They just, and Lou has, that's part of Lou's job is to take people to, take to the hospital as well as picking people up from the hospital, which he has to do frequently too. His cab company has a contract with the hospital. Somebody's released for non-payment. He gets paid to take them home and abandons them. And that's his job in a nutshell. He helps people out. He helps the needy and then abandons them as quickly as possible. And that's part of the reason he's driven by guilt so much. And he's a perfectionist and he's-
0: It does eat at him bad.
1: It does. And you know, it made me think, after I wrote about it, I thought, you know, there's a lot of guilt in this book. And in this day and age, people tend to be down on guilt. That like guilt is taught now as if it's something bad. But I wonder if there's any such a thing as decency possible without guilt, you know? Guilt serves a purpose. It spurs us forward into better behavior, but Lou is too hard on himself. He's too hard on his passengers. He's too hard on the world. He's a perfectionist, and the world is rough on perfectionists.
0: You know, it's good to have guilt, but in its measure. I mean, it's all about balance. It's all about finding the the, the middle path, I guess. (laughs) Well put.
1: (laughs) Lou has not found the middle path. It would be a boring book if he had to.
0: I was talking with another writer recently, the science fiction literary writer, uh, Alexander Weinstein, and really wants to find books that aren't based in conflict because he studies Buddhism too. And he's just wondering why in Western literature we're so driven by conflict.
1: Yeah, we are. And I think men especially are. I think there's a lot more emotional content in women's writing and a lot less so in men's writing. And those are, st- those are very wide-sweeping generalizations, so don't hold me to it. But lately, the person I've been reading the most over the last, you know, seven, eight years is um, Mississippi author Mary Miller. And she's not entirely a plot-driven writer. There's conflict, but, you know, there's stages of conflicts, too. You can find a lot of writers who just move violent act to violent act to violent act, And that's their structure, like crossing a river stone by stone. And uh, you can get away with that. You can sell books doing that. Somebody like Mary has no interest in that at all. She's interested in the honesty of characterization and the play of emotions and maybe the power flow of emotions. And that becomes the plot. And Mary and I are each other's first readers, and we have been for so many years. I've read so much of her, and I've always kind of tried to figure out how does she do it? Because there's a great narcotic effect to reading her. I love reading her work. I just get lost in it, and I'm always bummed it ends, because it's usually a short story. So just from reading her so much, I think there's a lot of influence that way, and it's less conflict, though it does have a gun in it, it does have one fight, and it does have an act of hideous violence, you know, so I'm not rising above the <laughs> fray in terms of Buddhism there.
0: But I can at least see a similarity in her last book, Biloxi, to this book in that you have these two men who are just aggravated beyond belief trying to get through the day.
1: I wonder, you know, what influence those two books had on each other, you know, because we edited each other's books in the, during the same time. But yeah, Mary's influence on me is more so than anybody lately, I think, even though she's younger than me, which is kind of depressing to think. But do you about. have
0: that Gulf Coast kinship? From both coming down from down south in Mississippi.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. I think uh, Mary actually read my first novel when she, I don't know she was probably a teenager or something, you know. And she told me, you know, it was the first novel that made her realize she could, you know, she could be a writer. This was something accessible. You didn't have to be writing about killing a whale off of Nantucket. You could write about something local in Mississippi. So Mary and I go back <laughs> that far, and I like that. Yeah, you know, she's just a dear friend. There's a lot of nice writers in Oxford, though. It's a wonderful place that way.
0: And I love the fact that she has not tried to downplay her accent at all. When I got into radio, I had to get rid of my my Ozark accent, and so I'm jealous that she's held on to hers so well.
1: I think Mary would say, "What accent do you mean?"
0: <laughs> we all have accents; every single one of us. The,
1: the South Mississippi accent is very different from the North Mississippi accent,
0: and I think the North. Because Missis- yours sounds fairly neutral.
1: Yeah, my dad was from upstate New York. Even when I was a kid, people told me, you don't have an accent. I grew up with people. I don't know if I do now or not, but I grew up with people telling me I didn't have an accent. And there is something to the South Mississippi, specifically the Hattiesburg accent, that seems to take a few points off your IQ. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas the North Mississippi accent, I like better. And you know, it seems more cerebral.
0: At one point, I know there's a difference between you and Lou because he's railing at a reading series at the local bookstore called Noir at the bar, mm-hmm. and he's talking about all these MFA writers there. And I know you've a, at least appeared on the bill of Absolutely. one Noir on the bars. Yeah. Noir at yeah. the bars.
1: Lou wasn't invited, so he has a little another road rage thing over that. He's a failing writer and feels neglected. I think he had some acclaim early in life, and nothing, which sounds familiar in some ways. But yeah, and that's something else that I learned from Mary. You know, to put pettiness on display. Don't gift wrap characters and to make, what I really hate when I'm reading is where I can see a writer trying to make me like a character. That the character, you know, suddenly gives money to some goody-goody foundation. Anything that manipulates me, I fight that. And I really like it when a character is just presented as interesting and all pettiness is on display. And so, and that's what I got from Mary, that kind of influence.
0: It's been almost 20 years since your last novel came out. How does it feel Compared to 20 years ago, when you first get the arcs and then the final copies of your book in?
1: I wish I had a good enough memory to answer that question. Yeah, it's a bit hard to digest. The world has changed so much. The publishing world, I'm just learning, having to learn everything over because it's a different world. Everything, I mean, the biggest change is the emphasis on social media, which is tormenting if you're neurotic by nature and you need and you have to be on it. So that's been the toughest thing about publishing that's changed. The way that the AWP programs and the MFA programs have really taken over the world in those 20 years, in that all of literature is is kind of a fortress kept inside the Associated Writing Program tent. And uh, if you're outside that tent, it becomes very difficult to get published. So that's changed just because there is nothing wrong with MFA programs. A good MFA program is a wonderful thing. The problem is there are 9 million of them. That's an exaggeration, but there's a lot, and there's more than there should be. The cronyism runs rampant, and it becomes very difficult for anybody to get published. And cronyism isn't malicious. Cronyism is trying to do somebody you've met and liked a favor. But if it's done on a legion scale, these are the people getting all the breaks, all the publications, all the awards, all the fellowships, all the blurbs, They're getting access to agents and editors, and they're paying extra for that access at these conferences. So they're paying for connections. So we have gentrification coming into even the field of literature to where if it keeps going this direction, it's going to be a toy for rich kids. You have to pay sometimes to submit to a journal digitally 30 bucks now. That's ridiculous. And it just filters out poor people.
0: Well, it's the same for the editorial process in New York. It's New York is so expensive, and it pays so little that you have to have parental wealth yeah. pay for your way.
1: Never hurts a writer to have parental wealth. You know, so. But
0: even for editors and slush pile readers and everything like that coming from, you know, the, the Seven Sisters or Ivy League schools and then parents paying their shared apartment with only one other person somewhere in Brooklyn. Yeah instead of, you know, someone getting out of college and not having any money and they can't afford to live in New York and get by on the 30 grand a year, they pay editorial assistance up there.
1: That's very true. But if they do try, they're going to come away with an experience that's, you know, kind of um, reeks of poverty and it might be more interesting than the other stories of the area but I agree with you. The cup of coffee in New York is a very expensive cup of coffee now. I was lucky to live there for seven months, right when my first novel came out about 20 years ago, when I thought I was going to be a literary star. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm so grateful I had a chance to be there. But yeah, I'd never moved there as a young broke writer, and that's a
0: foolish thing to do. Since there are so many points of biography in common between you and Lou. Is there anything you'd like to say to your friends to kind of assuage them not to worry about you too much after reading this?
1: Well, I kind of look at Lou as a really together version of me. He seems (laughs) to be doing fine. I kind of admire the guy. I aspire to his level of maturity. You know, it's, it's, you write a certain type of book that, you know, your relatives find disturbing. This has been my fate in life. I tend to write about madness and craziness. I went for years without an agent, and I was desperate for an agent, and I couldn't even get rejected by agents. You send stuff out, and they won't even reject you, which is a horrible feeling. So finally, there was an agent from ICM who was interested in me, and so I was very nervous and really wanted to get picked up. And he asked me to send him stuff, and I had lots. I had 20 years worth of stuff, so I sent him a sampling of a lot of things. And he called me up a couple of days later, and we were going to have a talk about it. And he said, you know, no matter what you're writing about, whatever your main story is, you always write about three things. They're always there. And I kind of froze and, you know, I asked, well, what are those? And I was a little worried. <laughs> and he goes, no matter what else you're writing about, you always write about UFOs, astral traveling, and suicide. So we hung up <laughs> 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 and, I, and I thought, "God, you know, God, no wonder I haven't been published in 20 years but he took me anyway. But he's right. You know, those three things, they run thick through everything I write. And I write about a lot of madness and battling madness, and uh, which is not an easy thing to write about and typically not something you're going to make much money writing about. But it, maybe it goes back to our earlier conversation of getting rid of conflict in writing and showing a different type of battlefield that's more interior and not dealing with good guys and bad guys and guns and stuff like that.
0: It's almost a trope at this point, but saying, you know, if... If you aren't driven mad by this world, then you're not really paying attention.
1: That's been my experience. I've been mad and I've been sane, and sane is better. But madness is really difficult to talk about. If you've ever experienced any sort of real breakdown, something you know that was life-threatening, it's really hard to write about. So madness as a subject is tough to write about, I think. They say comedy's the hardest thing, but to combine... An honest representation of what it's like to be fighting for your sanity, um, with comedy is like the only way you can do it because otherwise it's just it's just too filled with anguish to read. I think it's it's dark stuff.
0: I've seen it up close and it's so frightening.
1: Yeah, if we had mental health facilities, Lou would be doing a lot better, you know. But Lou's, you know, he's like, he doesn't have insurance, and even if you have Obamacare in Mississippi, that doesn't give you any access to mental health care. So there's a lot of people suffering terribly, and it's not necessary. Meanwhile, we're turning down millions from the federal government, right? The Republicans are turning down because it's attached to Obama's name, Obamacare. And we have what appears to be a pandemic moving in, and we're turning down federal aid. Now, that's criminal to me. People who are turning that down should should be voted out of office and then thrown in jail. That this is going on in Mississippi doesn't surprise anybody, but... But it's going on without anybody questioning it bothers me. So the mental health aspect of the book runs all the way through it, I'm sure.
0: I saw a recent ranking of states on difficulty to vote. Mm-hmm. And Mississippi, of course, was the most difficult state to vote really? in. And uh, Tennessee was number 48. So they were neck and neck, pretty much.
1: What specifically was so tough about Mississippi? What were the specific uh, obstacles? I, I, I
0: didn't see what how they ranked it, but I would guess... Just transportation would be a huge thing in Mississippi. Mm. Now, I don't know about the particulars in Mississippi, but I know several years ago in Alabama, they closed driver's license bureaus all throughout the Black Belt of Alabama. So people had to drive 60, 70 miles to even get an ID in order to begin to vote.
1: Yeah, that's a big step backwards, isn't it? Um
0: North Carolina when they had their uh, voter ID thing thrown out by the federal courts is because they went and looked at the IDs that African American people were most likely to have and then said all of those were invalid to register to vote.
1: Very effective, ruthless. People don't give up power. You know, Republicans in Mississippi are not going to give it up. They'll break all sorts of laws and rules to keep it. I worry about what's going to happen if I think Trump is going to get voted out of office, partially because of the coronavirus, which I just don't anticipate him being able to spin. And I wonder, you know, to what extent he's going to leave or not, and how do we get him out of the Oval Office? Power is tenacious. It doesn't relent. It doesn't give up. So we'll see.
0: And then see how poorly it goes for whoever gets the Democratic nomination, and then Ivanka gets elected in 2024.
1: So you're on board with that with me. Yeah. 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 I was just, my greatest fear is Ivanka, Um uh, because. Well, I would, I would be,
0: trust her more than Don Jr., but. Yeah, I guess <laughs> so.
1: Um, she might be more effectively evil though, you know? Um, yeah. I do really worry about that, and I just nobody's brought that up with me. So now you confirm my paranoia. <laughs> like, oh, it is going to be Ivanka, yes. and, she, and ironically, she'll be the first female president. And how sad will that be? Steeped in irony. Um, well,
0: Nixon. It took Nixon to go to China. So, <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> well, I'm sorry to bring things down so terribly at the end of our interview. Here. Oh well, you
1: know, it's dark days, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to keep things upbeat.
0: But uh, I, I want to say congratulations for sticking it out and bringing us a a fine slice of entertaining madness. And (laughs) the fact that I enjoyed it and laughed while I was reading it, should I feel bad for that?
1: God, I hope not. (laughs) I mean, no, no, no. You have to laugh. Otherwise, you have a heart attack and die, right? I hope there's no reason to feel guilty for laughter. I don't think it's mean-spirited humor, but it is dark because I was raised in restaurants raised by restaurants, really. And the humor in restaurants is so dark because it's unfiltered, because you have to smile and continue smiling and then walk back into the kitchen and just let loose. And so there is that really vein of dark humor that I'm fond of. Um, Every review I get is dark, but (laughs) something else, you know, balances it off.
0: Well, Lee, when the, uh, the Shakespeare book, comes out, please, uh, you have an open invitation to come back if we're all alive to talk about that.
1: It's a deal, Stephen. I hope to. And thank you for having me.
0: Lee Durkee is the author of the novel, The Last Taxi Driver, which is published by Ten House Books. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of BookTalk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.